Good morning. I ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Thankful for the opportunity to be able to to gather today, to be able to sing praises to the Lord, a gift that we should not take for granted. And as we look to Isaiah 42, we're going to see about our Christ, of course, who is the precious gift to us that we must never take for granted. As we've gone through Isaiah, we have skipped, if you will, from one mountain peak to another. And just to let you know, as I laid this out, uh, I didn't realize how difficult it would be to kind of move from one to another. There's so much richness in God's word. But as we've skipped from one mountain peak to another, we're looking at the gospel according to Isaiah as he points us to the Savior who was Christ. Isaiah had laid out through the first 39 chapters, really, the problem with Israel. They turned away from God and they had not followed him. They had trusted in other things and other people and other places. They had put idols in his place and had gone after those idols. So they had rejected God. And there at the end of chapter 39, remember, Isaiah tells to his people that he's prophesying to in his day that there's coming when Babylon will take you away. It will be the judgment of God for your own sinfulness. Babylon will take you away into captivity. And then Isaiah 40, we discussed last week, kind of launches us into the future where now Isaiah is prophesying to Israel in Babylonian captivity in the future, prophesying to them and giving them a word. And so with that, let's look to Isaiah 42 and we'll read verses 1 through 9 this morning. Isaiah 42, reading verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful this morning for the opportunity to be in this place and to hear your word. 
not only sung, but also proclaimed and, only, and, and read aloud, God. And when we read it, we're reminded of your promises, and we're thankful for the promises that you have made to us. But even more than that, God, we are truly thankful this morning for the promises that you have kept. And it's through your son, Jesus Christ, that all the promises made have found their fulfillment. He is the yes and amen. So God, this morning, help Christ Jesus be exalted. Help him be lifted up as the one to whom we look to for all things, the one to whom we trust. And as we read this passage, look to this passage, God, may we be reminded he is a mighty savior who comes gentle and lowly to us. Father, we ask that you bless our time and may every single one of us in this room be able to say, be able to say this morning that we love Jesus and we follow him. All of this by your grace and for your glory we pray. Amen. Isaiah 42 is the first in a group of passages in Isaiah that are referred to as the servant songs. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50. And then next week, we'll look at the second half, really, of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53. All of these are referred to as the servant songs. That's important because up, up until this point, the one that Israel was looking for to deliver them wasn't coming as a servant. He was coming as a king. If you remember, Isaiah 9 says that he's going to send his one and government shall rest upon his shoulders and he will establish his throne forever and rule will not depart from him. He will be in charge. They were looking for a king who would deliver them. And really it keeps going there because in Isaiah chapter 11, it tells, we, as we discussed, that, that root of, of Jesse, uh, that shoot of Jesse will come forth from the cold dead stump. And that speaks to the lineage of David himself, who was the son of Jesse. And God had made a promise. God had made a promise to David that his son will be on the throne forever. One from his line will be on the throne forever as king. And so up until this point in Isaiah, everyone was looking for the king who would come. But as Isaiah uh, had shown already, or the Lord had demonstrated, is that the people weren't listening. In Isaiah 6, remember, the curtain is pulled back and they see the glory of God on display, yet they see it, they don't perceive it, and they hear it, they don't understand it, and they don't turn to him. In fact, they had looked for everything else they could look for. And because of that, Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel in exile, in Babylon. Because of their sinfulness, because they didn't trust God, because they didn't follow him, they looked everywhere else but to God. And God says to them, it's because of your own sinfulness, you are in judgment and in Babylon. But then he says, I'm going to send one to you like a servant. He shifts that title, if you will, the king and now the servant. A key part of the context of this passage comes in chapter 41. So if you have your Bibles open, we're going to dive back into chapter 41 here for just a moment. The question before the people was, who or what do you trust in? Who or what do you trust in? Remember, Isaiah is talking to them as they're in Babylonian, Babylonian captivity because of their sinfulness. And the question comes, what is it that you are trusting in? And just like us, the people that day tend to lean toward whatever they can find to make them happy. They tend to lean toward putting their trust in whatever it is in life that 
makes them happy for whatever momentary reason or whatever momentary place. Whatever makes them happy is what they do. And before we know it, we begin to substitute those things in our life. We begin to substitute those things in our life that makes us happy or pleases us. We move them into the position that only God should sit in. And this is called idolatry. And so it is here for Israel. The main problem that they have And I would say even today, the main problem we have, think about this if you will, is not social. We like to talk about our social ills. We like to talk about those things. Our main problem is not social. Our main problem is not intellectual. Our main problem is is not that we're not educated enough. Some people believe this is the case. If we could just become more educated, then we'll be better off. Our main problem is not intellectual. Our main problem is not even moral this morning. It's not social, it's not intellectual or moral. Our main problem is that we keep going to people, places, or things, or thoughts other than God to find the answer and solutions to our problems. That's the main problem that we have. We look to other things to fix the problems we we bear. We see this in Israel's history in 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon had built the temple. It was majestic. It was beautiful. They brought the Ark of the Covenant in, which represented the presence of God with the people. The footstool of God. His throne is in heaven. His footstool's here on earth. God was present with his people. But they bring the Ark in, having this beautiful temple. God's glory fills the place. It says God's glory filled every nook and cranny of the temple, all of it. Look it up if y'all want to test nook and cranny. It fills every piece of it, all of it. God's glory is there. It fills it all. But then in 2 Kings, talking about the time that Isaiah was, was prophesying, the son of Hezekiah is on the throne, Manasseh, and instead of the glory of God filling the temple, he brings all of the idols into the temple. He brings the false idols there. God's glory's in the place, and they replace God's glory with carved wooden images made of stone or wood. And he fills it with idols of this world. And we look at this and we think about this, and we think, what a bunch of imbeciles, right? Why would they do such a thing? You've got the glory of the Lord, and you're replacing it for wood and stone and images? And the Lord says, that's what you have done. And the Lord here invites his people then to make a comparison. I want to use a word that the text uses here in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 29. Behold, they are a delusion. And what we need to understand here is the delusion of idolatry. It must be understood before we can get to Isaiah 42. Chapter 41 is talking about idols, and the Lord is inviting Israel to make a case for why they trust them. He's saying, okay, let's let's talk about this, basically. Kind of like he did in chapter 1 when he said, come, let us reason together. The Lord says in verse 21 of chapter 41, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Judah. And so here he's saying, if you want to make a case for your idols, bring your case. Bring the proofs. Let's talk about this, like the episode at Mount Carmel, if you will, with the prophet Elijah. The Lord is calling on the idols to prove their existence, prove their reality. And if you remember, if you don't know that episode, by all means, go back and read it. The prophet of Elijah goes to Mount Carmel with the the prophets of Baal. 
And there, Elijah recognizes and proves there on that mountain that the prophets of Baal are just figments of imagination. The gods of Baal are just figments of imagination. The people, they don't exist. They're not real. They have no power. They have no strength. They cannot even hear you. And some of the best trash talking in all of Scripture, Elijah says, maybe they're on in the bathroom or somewhere. They cannot hear you because they're not real. And God proves the reality that he is the only one that is all-powerful and great. As he rains down fire. In the same way, the Lord is coming to Israel and he said, All right, prove it. Prove it to us today. If this is true, then prove it. I want to hear about it. Make your case. I want to hear about these idols. While these idols of stone and wood may be real objects, they are lifeless. And the power that you may think they have is a figment of your imagination, the Lord says. They're lifeless. They've got no power. In other words, they're not real, there's nothing to them. In fact, the Lord says this very thing when he says in verse 24, Behold, speaking to the idols, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Behold, idols, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Here the Lord is appealing to our reason. The Lord is not afraid of reason. He's not afraid of rationality. In fact, he encourages it. And if he is the creator, as he says in chapter 42, if he's the one who stretches the heavens out and sets the earth in its place, if he's the one who made it all from the very word of his mouth, if he's the creator and everything else is what is created, then why would anyone worship the creator? or the creature rather than the creator. It's irrational to do this. Idolatry in its essence is the height of irrationality. If there's a creator who made all of these things, then why would we give our worship to that which was created when the creator is there? And obviously he is greater. Idols are nothing, but they still matter. And how do they matter? If you have, if you have your Bible still open, flip over with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. In Psalm 115, the psalmist is going to bring this out. He says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And then he goes and compares our God to the idols of this world. He said, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. He says, look at the idols of this world. He says, they, they have mouths but do not speak. They're dumb. They have eyes but do not see. They're blind. They have ears. They're deaf. They cannot hear. Noses, but those things are useless and they cannot even smell with them. Feet, but they're powerless because they cannot move. Hands that have no power in them. Bound up and they can't even speak. That's the idols of this world. Those are the gods of this world. But notice what verse 8 says. This is so important to us this morning. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. When you trust in the things of this world over against the one true and living God, and you put the things of this world in the place that only he deserves, it makes you out to be the fool, the scripture says. You're blind and dumb and can't understand the truth. You're the one who has, has done this. In fact, if you go back to chapter 41, he says, behold to the idols, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing in verse 24. And an abomination is he who chooses you. 
In other words, the height of irrationality, the height of foolishness is for us to choose that idol or something else to put in the place of God. Anything you put in God's place does nothing to that thing because that thing is a figment of the imagination. It's stone, it's wood, it's nothing. But it does so much to you. It's dangerous to your very soul. It's dangerous to your life. It's dangerous to who you are. An abomination is he who chooses the idols. Verse 24, he says, Behold, you are nothing, speaking of the idols. And your work is less than nothing. If you look over to verse 29, he makes it even deeper. Behold, they, speaking of the idols again, they are all a delusion and their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind, he says. Don't trust in these things. Don't look to these things. But if you notice here how he lays this out, he says in verse 24, behold, you are nothing. Behold, they are a delusion. And then now in chapter 42. In chapter 42, it's going to begin with another behold. And notice the grace of God, how he does this. This beautiful contrast then. Behold, idols, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. Behold, idols, you are a delusion and your works are nothing. You are images of empty wind. Behold, my servant. The Lord here brings a contrast out. And he's going to give a description of his servant at this point. After describing the idols and recognizing they are powerless and they can do nothing for you, now he's going to turn and he says, now let me tell you about my servant. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about this one who's going to come. Behold, idols are nothing. Behold, idols are delusion. Behold, my servant. The Lord is being gracious to his people here. His people who have rejected him. The people who have turned to false gods. And what he's saying here is this is not some hopeless lecture. Chapter 41, he's not just lecturing. I'm not just lecturing you, telling you how dumb you are, or, or this is foolishness, or this is the height of irrationality. That's not just what I'm doing. Surely he wants to point that out. But he's not just lecturing them here. He's going to give them a glorious alternative to the wood and stone and rubbish of this world. He's going to give them a glorious alternative that he will provide for them. That's far better than they can ever possibly imagine. He says, come, let's talk about this chosen servant of the Lord. As it says in chapter 42, verse 1, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, the chosen servant of the Lord is unlike these idols of this world, for this one has power. This is my servant. This is the one I have chosen. He is being sent on my behalf. He is coming in my power. He is coming in my strength. And if you want me to, Israel, I'm sure the Lord is thinking, I can just go through a laundry list of what I have done for you in demonstration of my power and my glory throughout your history. And all of that that you have known from the Exodus all the way down through, all that you have known of what I have done, the Lord says, my servant is coming in my power. He's coming in my strength and my spirit is upon him. This is different than the gods of this world who can do nothing and less than nothing. This is the one who's coming in my power. This is the one who's coming in my strength. And when he comes, he will bring forth justice to the nations, the Lord says. This word justice is used four times in verses one through four. Repeatedly saying this, which lets us know it's pretty important. 
And what he means here, he's not just talking about doing the right thing or, or the right ruling, if you will, in a case. Oftentimes we think of justice that way. I'm going to do what's right and make the right ruling. Here there's more going on, I believe. This word justice means that God has a plan for all of us. No matter where you are, you're in bondage of Babylonian, this one is coming with a plan. No matter where you are, you're rich, you're wealthy, this one's coming with a plan for you. No matter where you are, this one has a plan for how all of history is going to lay out, and he is going to carry that plan out. He comes with justice. He's got a plan for all of us, and he will absolutely do what is right. He will do what is right. Aren't we all, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, longing for something better? looking for something better in life, looking for something more glorious, looking for something more true. Well, he says, here comes my servant, and he has a plan. He will make it right what is wrong. He will bring justice. Not only will he have this plan, he will definitely execute this plan. His kingdom will come. His will will be done, he says. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice to all. And how will he do it? Verses 2 through 4 becomes this beautiful picture of strength and gentleness. Those two things wed together here in this servant. And it, it, it goes as a stark contrast to the idols of this world who have no strength, who have no power, and therefore have no position for grace, mercy, or anything else. They have nothing to offer. And so now he says, mine's going to come, and he is going to have strength, and he will have gentleness. In other words, he's not going to need to raise his voice because nothing can truly stop him. Nothing can get in his way. He's not going to need to scream and yell to assert himself because he is truth, and no one can stop him. He doesn't need to come with great fanfare because he doesn't need to build a coalition. He doesn't have to build the nations together and find some allies, if you will, to accomplish his task. He can come on his own and he will accomplish it. He does not have to build some coalition in and of himself. So he comes not crying aloud or lifting up his voice or making it heard in the street. He doesn't need anyone's help to carry out his plan. He has power in and of himself. He won't grow faint and he won't be discouraged because his task is clear and his plan is sure. What wears us out so much is we don't know what's coming next, right? What makes us so faint is we're not sure how this is going to all work out, so we get stressed out and worked up because we're tired of trying to make decisions to get things worked out and get things done. But not when the plan is clear. When the plan is clear and he knows what he is to do, there is no going faint. He stays faithfully on the task, and he does not get discouraged because his plan is sure. And he's equipped for it, the passage says. He's ready for it. And notice verse 3. How will he treat his people? If he's coming with a sure plan where he will bring about justice, not needing to build a coalition, not growing faint or discouraged because his task is clear, his plan is sure. If he's coming with that, how will he treat his people? Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. Everybody knows what a reed is, right? A uh, a reed growing up there on the side of the river. A reed in and of itself is fragile. But a bruised one? A bruised one is more fragile than we can know. It must be handled with care. The slightest mishandling of it could break it in two and make it useless now. And so ultimately he says that this one who is coming 
His plan is sure. His justice is sure. He's coming in a bruised reed he will not break. He will handle with care all of his people. But more than that, he says, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. We know how that faintly burning candle, if you will, just trying to get it going and, and the slightest of breeze, the slightest of breath goes on and it's out, it's poofed, it's gone. We know how that happens, trying to, trying to make things work. And he says, that faintly burning wick, that faintly burning candle, this one who is coming will not quench that. It's tedious, right? His people are broken. His people are, are hanging on to life. And it says, the one, my servant who is coming, will not break you and will not quench out your life. Does this not sound for us then? As we've talked about how will he do it? As we've talked about how will he treat his people, does this not sound for us like the great invitation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? If you have your Bibles again, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. I believe echoing the very heart of Isaiah 42 here, the Lord Jesus makes this great invitation. And I'm sure you've all heard it before, but let's hear it again this morning because God's word is a great invitation to us to come to him. And he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, Jesus talking, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, points out here that this is the only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. He says, my heart is gentle and lowly. And that gentleness and that lowliness, if you will, makes him accessible to all of us. He's accessible to each and every one of us. He's not high and lifted up as the throne is. He's the servant now who comes gentle and lowly to us. He comes with a heart that is gentle and lowly. And Ortland says this, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And so it is with Christ. Isaiah 42, he comes and he says, he doesn't look at all of Israel who's turned to false idols and turns to false deities. He doesn't look at them and go, I told you so, you bunch of idiots. You should have never done this. You are asking and begging for your own thing. I'm going to give you what you deserve. You should have listened to me in the first place. The Lord doesn't come that way. He comes exactly the opposite. He says, behold, let me show you my servant. And my servant's one who's not going to break you. And my servant's not as one that's not going to quench you. My servant's one who's going to come in justice and he's going to do exactly what we want him to do. And he's going to give us exactly what we long for and what we desire. That's who's coming to you. He doesn't come with pointed finger. He comes with open arms and he doesn't come to tell you, I told you so. He comes to tell you, look who I have here that can give you everything you long for. That's how he comes to us. The gods of this world will leave you broken and lifeless. And I'm not even trying to make a list of what they are. What I'm telling you is so often in our life, we take the things that make us happy or the things we think make our children happy and we elevate them to a place that they do not belong and they cannot carry. 
We put them in a spot that they can never satisfy. They can never give us hope because we put them in the place of God and we elevate them there as if they're more important. And what scripture is telling us is this, anything you put in that place is going to break you and is going to quench you. But look to my servant. He will never break you and he will never quench you. He will give you life. Think of that faintly burning wick snuffed out with the hint of wind or breath. But at the same time, it can also be fanned into a flame that becomes stronger and stronger with just the right touch. And so it is with Christ. He knows exactly what we need and he gives it to us. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His heart is gentle and lowly. He's not wagging his finger at us. He's opening his arms. Now we can consider how foolish it is to turn to false gods and false deities when we have the true one waiting for us, the Lord says. You've tried other things. You've done other tests to this. And every time you've left, been left empty, here he is waiting with open arms for you. Verses 5 through 9 of chapter 42 make it clear that the reputation of the Lord stand or fall, stands or falls on Jesus Christ. Yeah, many things will happen. Many things will be fulfilled along the way. But all of the claims of Scripture are found either true or not true in this one servant. All of it is wrapped up in him. So it comes down to this one who has come. And think and consider what he said. When he says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, think about Christ going to the cross. And he did not raise up an argument. He did not even speak when he was on trial. Why? Because the plan was just how he wanted it to happen. There was no need for him to rise up or raise his voice because everything was working exactly according to plan. You think about how Christ comes. He comes and he does not grow faint or grow weary, but he says that he went to the cross knowing what was coming after the cross, knowing the exaltation of glory that was waiting for him. He endured the cross, Hebrews 12 says. In other words, Jesus knew the plan. It was clear, and he knew it would succeed, so he did not grow faint and weary in even death, Scripture says. Knowing what was happening. You see, the first half of Isaiah points toward a king who would come the second half of Isaiah points to where a servant who would come. And what we need to know is that is not either or, but both and. That our king who rules and reigns is the one who came to serve us. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And my prayer is that all of us in this room from the front to the back, side to side, would be a part of that many. Recognize that our king reigns and thankful that our king at that point stepped down off the throne to come and serve so that we can have life and know that our king is no tyrant who looks to lord over us, who looks to punish us. He is the king who is gentle and lowly, who has his arms wide open and says, come to me, come to me. He's not going to break you. He's not going to quench you. In fact, he's going to bring you life. Are you hurting this morning? He will comfort you. Are you tired? He will strengthen you. Are you distressed? He will bring you peace. Are you lost and undone? He will save you. And as he said to Israel, he's still saying today, 
don't fall for the delusions of this world. They're powerless and they're an abomination to God. Because he says to us, I am the Lord God, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And he also says, I'm the one who will open the eyes of the blind and cause the deaf to hear. Remember what Psalm 115 said, that the idols of this world are blind. They have eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but cannot hear. And those who worship them become like them. The Lord here is not just talking about physical blindness or physical deafness. Although we see Jesus doing that throughout his life, understanding he can make all of that right, everything wrong right again. But he's talking about spiritual blindness and deafness. Those who worship these idols become like them. So put them down and come to the servant of God, Christ Jesus the Lord, who has his arms wide open. And you who are blind, you'll now see. And you who are deaf, you will now hear. And guess what? He's not like the gods of this world. Because if you cry out to him, his ears are real and he can hear you. He sees your pain. He sees your struggle. He sees it all. He sees it and he knows it because he can see his hands are strong and they're mighty to save and his feet are powerful and they have come to us when we could never go to him. So why would we worship anything else? Look to the sure thing, the all-powerful, gentle and lowly Savior who does not stand wagging his finger but stands there opening his arms to us today. Verse 10, I love, I didn't read that at the beginning. We read it earlier in the service. The Lord ends it with, behold, I'm doing something new. All former things have come to pass. I'm doing something new. Verse 10. So sing to the Lord a new song. I am sure that there are those in this room this morning that are tired of singing the same old song. And the Lord says, I've got a new one for you to sing. One where you find life. And you find joy. And when you're broken, you'll find strength. One where you find a Savior waiting with open arms. Let's sing that together as we pray. Father, we thank you for the King who was a servant who came on our behalf. I thank you, God, that you have not left us alone, but you have brought us salvation. That you're not standing there, maybe as we deserve, pointing the finger and wagging it at us, Father, but you're standing there with open arms, Christ Jesus, our Lord, waiting for us to come. So let us not neglect so great a salvation this morning. Father, if there's anybody here still trusting in things of this world that have no power in them to find joy and happiness, may they set them aside and look to the one who has all power the one who has humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, and now he is gentle and lowly and gives this invitation to everyone who would hear it today. Come to me, Jesus says. Gosh, may we not neglect that. Whatever pride we have, whatever obstacle in our way, God, may we recognize that the author of this, the offer of Christ Jesus is is far better when we set it all aside and not neglect him waiting with open arms if anyone 
is here today, Father, that is looking to sing a new song and find it in Christ. I'll be standing at the front, God. Press upon their hearts to make this move and make it in a way so that others may know you are working. Someone wants to be a part of our church here this morning, God. Work in their hearts so they can come here with us and explode with the joy of our Savior so not only the nations will hear but our neighbors. God, work. We're dependent upon you to work. Thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. May he be exalted and lifted up even now. In Jesus we pray. Let's stand together and sing.